I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to episode 34 of The Milkman of St. Gaffs. I'd like to give a shout out to some new patrons. Bogglemeister, Flysprayer, Brian Dooley, Dola Radio Clerk, excellent work Brian, Joshua Kovac, Milkman White Badge, Aileen SK, Flysprayer, Autumnal Void, Flysprayer, and Mikey, Milkman White Badge. I'd also like to thank John for buying me some coffees, and Layla for buying me some coffees also at coffee.com. And you can go to howiemilkman.com to find out how you can support this one-man band. And if you are listening for the first time, this is a serialized story, so you should start with episode one. And with that, let's get to the episode. It's called The Keys. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gaffs, starring Howie the Milkman. The sun was coming up over the horizon. I was just waking up, and I could hardly see with the light in my eyes, and it took me a bit to remember where I was, or why I felt so bad. Somehow I thought I'd wake up in my own bed, but I'd passed out at the end of the Ming's Bite spit. The sun warmed the front of me a bit, but I was lying there among the cold broken stones and rubble. I couldn't move. The iron rods sticking out of the stones made funny shapes. I could see my breath. I was sore and a stone was sticking into my back, but I just couldn't move and my head hurt. All of this rubble came from underground when they made the underground train in the city. They didn't have to dig too deep, and I don't think they ever had any problems with creatures. But they didn't know where to put all the dirt and someone suggested they just pile it up out here. It would help break up the waves and protect the city from the big storms they sometimes get here. They mixed in the bits of old buildings they'd knocked down over the years. All the junk the city didn't want ended up out here. My stomach felt achy and queasy, and I imagined the town puking up all this dirt that I was lying on. A breeze was picking up, and the water looked cold, but somehow inviting. I thought of maybe swimming out and never coming back, just seeing what great fish might swallow me up or what dolphin might carry me across the sea to the other side. 
I'd start a new life as a spice trader in the far-off deserts, and no one would ever know I'd once been a milkman, or that the stars were green because I'd once fought with an underground cow. Or maybe I'd go back to the sandy island and wait for the old woman to die and take over her job. I'd learn to ride those horses instead of just looking at them, and I'd go feral just like those horses. And if anyone ever washed up on shore, they'd be shocked at how wild I looked, but I'd set them at ease and teach them the ways of the island. My only fear was that if I ever were to pursue such a path, there would be serious repercussions for all of those left behind. I had responsibilities now. If I left, Stormy would be all alone in the world, and I couldn't let that happen. Then there was the sound of bikes and I turned my head. A mom, a dad, a little girl, and a boy who looked to be about ten. They were riding their bikes out my way. The dad stopped and spotted me among the ruins. Hey guys, let's go over this way. And he was pointing to the other side of the spit, away from me. Nice families came out here on their bikes on the weekends to have picnics. The mom and the girl stopped and saw me too. Come on, this way, Dad said. The little boy ran over anyways. <laughs> totally drunk, he yelled. I watched as the mom and dad put their kickstands down and then the dad was unpacking stuff from the basket on the back of his bike. Maybe one day I'd be out here with Stormy and our kids once I was established. And if I saw some poor guy passed out on the rocks, I'd offer him a bun or a drink of water or something. After all, you never know if your midnight ramblings might bring you back to a warm bed with your wife in a nice neighborhood or to a cold pile of rocks sticking out into the sea. Anyways, I figured I'd better get up and get back home. With a lot of stiffness and a sickening feeling in my head and stomach, I got to my feet. I was all dirty and dusty, so I brushed myself off. The girl was staring at me from over there. I waved like everything was fine. My uniform was a mess. As a representative of the milkmen, and therefore of the Department of Lactic Affairs, I thought it was my responsibility to reassure these people that everything was under control. Hey folks, I said as I walked over. They looked up, shielding their eyes from the low sun. I just wanted to let you know that I'm out here on official milkman business and that there's nothing to worry about. The little boy had a thin face with a thin nose. He was sneering at me through his squinty eyes. Why don't you bugger off, you bum? Ronnie, his mom shouted. Okay, well, have a nice day. And I began the long, awful walk back home. But pretty soon after, a rock landed just off to my left. Ronnie! The mom's voice rang out. Then another rock fell. I looked back and little Ronnie was winding up to throw another at me. Bum! He yelled. I just walked a little faster, which was really painful because of how my head felt. My throat was horribly dry. I'd meant to ask the family for some water, but then I forgot. I remembered the fight with the bartender. Hopefully I hadn't said anything stupid. I think people were staring at me as I stumbled about. I was talking to myself. I felt even sicker when I remembered. I wasn't just talking, I was nearly shouting, and in uniform too. Bit by bit, 
images from the party came back to me, unbidden and unwanted. I remembered the smell of the fish stew and felt even sicker. The fish stew, that's what we had at Professor Manstone's party. I might as well tell you about it now, since otherwise you won't know why Stormy was going to be mad at me later. When it was time to eat, we were all sitting at a big table with all these professors and Professor Manstone and his wife. She'd made this fish soup that was full of clams and shrimp, but the clams were still in their shells and the shrimp were also still in their shells. So all these professors in suits were pulling the shrimps out and ripping the shells off before eating them. They put all the shells on a plate that was right in front of me. The little black dots of their eyes were all staring at me from the plate. Look, Howie, they said. You've got soup spots all over your uniform. And as I looked down, I realized that it was true. The brown broth had splashed on my immaculate white uniform, and I'd have to go through the rest of the night like that. I was really hungry, but I couldn't figure out how the shells came off, and I was getting little cuts on my fingers. I wanted nothing more than to eat a couple of these mocking bastards, but I just couldn't. I would have asked Stormy to help me out, but they'd put her right beside Professor Manstone at the head of the table, and he was talking to her in some other language, trying to impress her, I thought. She laughed at this. She didn't even notice that I wasn't getting anything to eat, or that some other professors kept asking me these ridiculous questions. So, Howie, what's it like having to talk to all those people every day? Do you get a sense of the mood of the citizenry? Then another guy put his hand on the other's arm. We can't ask him that. These milkmen, it's hard for them to talk about what it's like out there. Then he gave me a knowing smile, like he understood the struggles of the milkman. I looked down at the translucent shells of the fallen shrimp. What the hell does this guy know about the struggles of the milkman? they asked and I gave both the professors a cold glare. Then I looked down into the stained napkin on my knees. You know, sometimes I feel like us milkmen are the only thing standing between the nice lives of you ordinary citizens and horrors you can't even imagine. The two eggheads nodded solemnly. Then they sipped their wine. Professor Manstone had opened a couple of bottles that were more than 30 years old from his basement. I guess these old guys had a lot of clutter to get rid of. Stormy drank some, but I didn't want to. I eventually managed to get some shrimp down and some broth. Thankfully, there was some bread there too, or I would have starved. But now, here on the spit, walking back home in the uncaring morning light, the thought of those slippery little creatures made me feel ill. After what seemed like a very long time, I got where the spit met the mainland, and I walked along the streets again. I took a long drink from a water fountain in a park I passed. The soft municipal water felt good going down. There weren't many cars around at all, which was odd. Then I remembered. When Stormy and I got to Professor Manstone's house, I saw that he had a red Enzerado sports car in the driveway. I'd never seen one before. I figured it wouldn't hurt if I sat in it. I wanted to check out the dashboard. Howie, what are you doing? Stormy asked when I went over to the car. She looked amazing, all dressed up in her black dress and with all that makeup. It's okay, we're guests, right? But when I tried to open the car door, it didn't open. 
I guess he must have locked the doors. I guess he locked the doors, I said. That's what people in the big city do, Howie. No one on St. Gaff's ever locked their car doors like that. I thought I'd ask Professor Manstone if I could sit in it when I got inside. But when we went in, I got really nervous. All these men were standing around with drinks and suits and serious looks on their faces. The house was huge, bigger than Mr. Greenwood's. There was a piano right in the living room. The only woman there, Linda, was Professor Manstone's wife, and, I learned later, she was one of the only women professors at the university. She took our coats and seemed much friendlier than everyone else. Stormy wanted to talk more with Linda, but she said she had to go finish making the stew. So there we were, stranded and knowing no one in this sea of serious intellectuals. Professor Manstone came over. He was tall and dignified and the oldest one there. He told us that Professor Lammy wasn't feeling well and couldn't make it. Then he offered to make us drinks. Stormy said she'd love one, and he took her to the kitchen to make her a gin and tonic and told me to go ahead and mingle. I just stood there. There were groups, circles of professors, all turned inward. When Stormy came back, we started talking to all sorts of people. Professors of botany and phrenology and government and physics. Every group we visited started with the same question. Why are you in uniform? And I gave each group the same answer. I'm on call. I might have to go at any moment. Being a milkman isn't just some five to two type job. You guys know we don't just deliver milk, right? This always seemed to work. I told them about investigating subversives and how I couldn't talk about my work at the experimental labs. They always laughed nervously since none of their book learning prepared them for what it was really like. I loved the feeling of giving these sheltered bookworms a taste of reality. Maybe these guys had written important articles about ancient screwdrivers or whatever, but I knew what it was like. I'd fought, I'd died, I'd changed the color of the stars. I could never make them really understand. Finally, one asked me the right kind of question. So were you on St. Gaff's when the geyser erupted? Yes, I made it erupt. You did, I see. And you summoned a whale. Yes, I was surprised too, to be honest. He turned to the other guy. The further from the center you get, the wilder these stories are. The other one nodded. It was in the newspaper. Yes, yes it was. <laughs> then we met the dashing Professor Tremblay. He'd given a talk earlier about his new book, Slipping Towards Servitude, The Economics of Enslavement in the Interwar Period. The dinner was really for him. While we were eating, most of the conversation revolved around his theories. One by one, the others asked him questions like they were firing cannons at the city walls. Even though they all tried to sound humble and like some random thought had just passed through their brains. But everyone could see that they'd been thinking all night long about ways of tripping the guy up. But he had these white teeth and this winning smile, and every cannonball just bounced off him harmlessly. He was sitting on the other side of Stormy. I watched helplessly from down the table as he showed her how to peel the stupid greasy shrimp we were supposed to be eating. I was just about home by this point. The streets were pretty empty, even for a Saturday. Some shops were open, lots were closed. Then I remembered why. It was Dominion Day, the day when we Towlanders celebrate all of the colonies we have dominion over. 
There were lots of military parades at the exhibition grounds, and there were rides and games. When I was really young, they used to have a game where you could throw a ball and make a colonial subject fall in a tub of cold water. I never got to throw a ball, but it was fun to watch. They stopped, though, because some people thought it was against our principles of equality and freedom. I walked up Tootingham Street, desperate to apologize to Stormy, and then have a long nap. When I turned the doorknob, though, I was seized with terror. The door was locked, and I didn't have a key. I knocked, no answer. I pounded, no answer. But some woman stuck her head out of the window and shouted at me to be quiet. I'd finally been shut out of my own home. Stormy was in there, I was sure, and she decided that she didn't want me back after all. My worst fear was going to come true today. I was going to become a homeless man. Locked out of every decent home and shunned by all decent society. I walked off. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I wondered. Maybe I could go to my mother's place. She always had an open door. There was always a light on there. But then I remembered she denounced me to the police. My only chance was to try and patch things up with Stormy. Maybe I could get her the new kitchen knife she wanted, or some lingerie. But then the sounds of drums drew me to the nearest street. There was a sparse crowd along the sidewalks, and there was the local regiment. I'd heard they'd managed to take some village on the border, and now they were back for a rest and a celebration. They were supposed to be marching in order, but they weren't. There were three guys all walking arm in arm up at the front, and I knew them. They were in my grade at school. They'd all joined up for the war when I went off to St. Gaff's. Everyone was cheering, and the three guys, they were smiling, and their eyes were brimming. You could tell they'd been through a lot and probably saw their comrades getting blown up. They looked a lot older now. I knew one day they'd all be reminiscing at the Legion Hall over glasses of beer, talking about how Jimmy got his legs blown off or how Jenny's head got blown off by a cannonball. The milkmen didn't have a Legion Hall. We had to swallow up all our sins and regrets and memories and keep them to ourselves. That was the price we paid for being in the service. Part of me almost wished that I'd gone ahead and joined the army. Maybe I'd missed something. But then I reminded myself that I had a higher calling. I had my own stories to tell. Maybe I'd get lucky, I thought, and I'd get to tell them someday. Then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw, on the other side of the street, Stormy. She had two big paper bags full of groceries. I guess she must have gone out shopping and then stopped to watch all the soldiers. She looked so happy and carefree, with the sun on her face. I couldn't remember the last time I'd seen her smile like that. When the soldiers and the band had passed, I crossed the street to where she was. She'd just set off for home. Stormy! It was like a cloud passed over her when she saw me, and it felt awful. She wasn't happy to see me, probably because of the fight last night. It wasn't even a fight, really. I just lost my temper a bit and said some things I shouldn't have a bit too loudly. After dinner at Professor Manstone's, Stormy and me were standing in line with Professor Tremblay. We were waiting because Professor Manstone had hired a cigar maker to make fresh cigars for after dinner. 
Tremblay was asking me questions. At least he was taking a genuine interest in me. I was telling him I'd just gotten here and was planning to move up the ladder with the department. So, one day you'll be head of the milk station. <laughs> I think so, for a while, but then I want to get an office job downtown. And you'll raise a whole brood of little milkmen. <laughs> it's an important job. Where would we be without our coffee cream, eh? Exactly. A lot of people don't get that, how important it is to our civilization and our way of life. Yes, heaven forfend that we should use powdered milk. <laughs> this guy really got it, I thought. By that time, we'd gotten to the front of the line. I went to the cigar maker and asked him what I should have. Not much of a smoker? Not really. I smoke a pipe sometimes. I'll make you up something light. You really gonna let that guy laugh at you like that? In front of your girl? Huh? I heard that prick. Someone talked to me like that, I'd punch him right in the mouth. He's making fun of you, right to your face. I looked back and Tremblay was telling Stormy a joke and she slapped him playfully on the shoulder. Stop, she said. Was the cigar maker right? He handed me my cigar with raised eyebrows. I wouldn't take that shit from anybody. I went over and took Stormy by the hand. Can I talk to you a minute? And I sort of let her out onto the back porch where a few guys were smoking. We went to a corner where no one else was. So I guess he's a lot funnier than I am. What? It's late. We should get going. No, I'm having a nice time, and we never go out. What's wrong with you? Well, I've been up since four, and I'm exhausted, so let's go. You go if you want to. Fine. And I walked right through the house to the front door. I put my hand on the doorknob and thought, If I leave, Stormy's going to be here alone with that creep. So I marched right back to the porch. And sure enough, there was Professor Tremblay with that permanent, infuriating smile talking to Stormy again. Stormy, we have to go. Before she could say anything, Tremblay piped up. Stormy was just telling you that you wanted to get some rest. That's right. That's fine. I'll make sure she gets home safe. No, you should come with me. Anyways, one thing led to another, and before I knew it, I was shouting about how if she wanted to spend all her time with these eggheads, that was fine with me. All these old guys did was write books and blabber a lot. I'd made the stars change color, and I wasn't even 20 yet. The peckerhead who'd been nodding at me at the dinner was nodding again. Shellshock, he said to his neighbor. Then I stormed out, feeling like a complete idiot. And now, here I was, walking back home with Stormy. She didn't seem that mad, even. She just wanted to get home. Listen, Stormy, you wanted to be with a milkman. Well, this is what it's like. There's things I can't talk about. She looked at me like I was some sort of idiot. She just didn't get it. I promised to behave better in the future. I helped her carry the groceries. We didn't really talk that much. Back home, we'd settled into the usual routine. Work went on as usual. We talked mostly about managing the household, how much we could spend on groceries, and how we could save up a bit at a time for a new kitchen table, and maybe one day a radio so we could finally listen to Eliza Pike. I found it all pretty boring, but it seemed to be about the only thing Stormy wanted to talk to me about. Until one rainy evening, there was a knock at the door. I opened it, and there was a guy with a hat and a raincoat pulled up close to his face. He shoved a bunch of papers at me. Howie Coxwell? Yes? You've been served. What does that mean? It means you have to go to court when the papers say. What for? How the hell should I know? 
Then he walked away. Inside, I tossed the papers on the table. What are those? Stormy asked. I have to go to court for something. She looked through them. You've been charged with murder. It says that because you're a milkman, you don't have to wait for the trial in jail. But we have to get a lawyer right away. Oh my god, how much is that going to cost? How much is it going to cost? I might get sent to jail for the rest of my life. They might execute me. You're innocent, right? Of course. So we just have to focus on getting a good lawyer. You'll have to tell Mr. Dwyer that you've got to take the day off tomorrow to look for one. No way, he'll kill me if I take any time off. Howie, you've been charged with murder. Okay, fine, I'll tell him, but he's gonna dock my pay, at least. The next morning, I showed up for work and took the truck out. I had no intention of taking the day off or telling anyone about the murder charges. I figured I could look for a lawyer after work or on a break or something. I hadn't noticed any law offices on my route, but I'd keep my eyes peeled. And then something weird happened. I was delivering milk to one house, and I recognized the kid playing out front. It was the little kid from the spit the other morning. It was quite a coincidence. I must have been delivering milk to his family and never even recognized them. Hey, buddy. He just sneered at me. I knocked and his mom opened the door. I thought she probably recognized me, but I didn't want to say anything. But then something occurred to me. I had an opportunity to show them that I was a responsible citizen and not just some bum. Excuse me, missus, you seem like you know the neighborhood around here and I'm pretty new to the area. I have some legal business to attend to. Do you happen to know where I can find a lawyer? Hmm, what kind of lawyer? Civil? Criminal? Definitely criminal. She gave me a wary look. You could try Mr. Donaldson around the corner above the shoe repair place. Thanks. I figured I was probably ahead of schedule, so I decided to leave my truck for a minute and go see if I could talk to the lawyer. But seconds later, I heard my truck's engine start, and before I could get back to it, it took off down the street. I cursed myself for not locking the doors. I ran after the truck. Whoever was driving didn't know what they were doing. The gears were grinding, it was braking too hard, but I couldn't catch up. It went around a corner and I went down an alley to try and cut it off and ended up in a dingy hallway. The gas lamps were flickering. It stank and there were all these brown doors. I tried one after another. They were all locked except one. I went in and there was an old woman lying there. I felt like I'd known her in another life. She was on the floor with a coma mask over her face, pumping air from a small gas-powered machine. Her eyes were closed. I stood and I stood and she didn't move. Then her finger twitched, and I knew she was coming out of the coma, but she didn't move for a long time. Then a nurse came in. Her gown was all ripped and blood-stained. I looked. From the last victim, she explained about the blood. Her finger moved, I said. She's coming out of it, I think. The fingers twitch, the eyes flutter, sometimes there's a mumble, but she's not coming out of it, the nurse said. You'll always think she's coming out of it, but she never will. I kept watching and watching, but there were no more twitches, so I left. I just walked along because I could hear something down at the end of the hall. A man had his back to me. He was hunched over something. He was eating, slurping. I got closer. It was Stan. 
He was lifting eyeballs covered with connective tissue out of a bowl and eating them. He noticed me, wiped his mouth, and turned around. What are you doing here? I thought you wanted to see me. You're supposed to be doing your job. Someone stole my truck. He stood up. He was tall now, glowering at me. Don't you remember what you're supposed to be doing here? Of course, you need help with the experiments to get the phlogisterian and make the gas. He grabbed my uniform with one hand and pulled me close. Then he slapped me really hard across the face. You're a stupid, stupid boy, Howie. Don't you remember why you were sent back?